Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. You know, asking is the rule number one. If you don't ask, you don't give. But if that's the only interaction you get, you're going to lose. Welcome back to episode 30 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode and the whole incredible mini-series on giving moments is made possible by our friends at Neon One. In today's episode, I'm interviewing Francesco Ambrogetti. Francesco leads the supporter engagement for UNICEF Worldwide. With over 20 years international experience in four continents, and he is the author of Emotion Raising and his more recent book, Hooked on a Feeling. And it was Hooked on a Feeling that got me really hooked on Francesco's work. If you've been listening to What the Fundraising for a while, you know that we focus a lot on the science behind how we feel and why we do what we do, or how to change what we do. Well, Francesco's work takes a lot of that research and applies it directly to donor behavior. And oh boy, is it mind-blowing. This episode is all about fundraising moments, but they might not be the giving moments you have in your head. We talk about the difference between what happens in a donor's brain when they give that one-time donation versus the donor that becomes a lifelong donor and advocate. What if I told you that in a lot of ways, this comes down to a chemical actually being released in their brain and that you fundraiser have the ability to create moments for your donors that release that chemical. You just might not be doing it. If there was ever a conversation and research that I wish I had seen before I started fundraising, it's this. So let's dive in together to learn all about what makes a moment matter and how this relates to what you're raising or not raising, when and why. Hello and welcome everyone. I am so honored to be here today with Francesco Ambrogetti. Francesco, I read Hooked on a Feeling. It was recommended to me by a friend and have just devoured the book, honestly. I think it is so brilliant the way that you explore fundraising and the donor experience from a neuroscience perspective. And you give us all these incredible case studies. I know we're going to talk about a lot of those pieces today. But first, I'd love to just have you give a little introduction to your work and what brings you to this moment in time and inspired you to write this book and your first book, Emotion Raising? Thank you, Mallory. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I've been through various parts of the world, to be honest, in the last 20 years. I live in four continents, work with all sorts of organization. And I get into the New York Times ago because I would just like all of us try to understand better a bit of a science, how people behave and why this basic question considered but fundamental like giving money come from, right? It's pretty strange. If you think about it rationally, somebody stopped you in the street over the phone or through an ad and you just decided to give your credit cards or your details. So it's why that happened, how that happened. And too often, I think we very much biased by our own opinion, which is important, but sometimes science is science. So Neuroscience, which is a very broad, evolving field, help us to understand better, a little bit better, why we are generous or less generous. So that's brought me there. And from there, I just worked with many pioneers in this field, from Dan Ariely, Dan Hill, and other. I just do some also being into the labs to just even try to just see into the brain how it works in practice. But it's fascinating because, it's, in a sense, it's counterintuitive. But on the other side, it's confirmed many things that we know as fundraiser, right? That we learn from the practice. So that's brought me to where I am now. The second book has been written during the pandemic because the simple answer is 
Why the book? Because in the lockdown, you could do Peloton, you can do other things, or you can write a book. Very simple question. No, it just gave me the opportunity to spend more time. But basically, it's 20 years of research and practice to particularly it's called Ukton and Feeling, based on a famous song. But because to understand, okay, emotions are push us or drive us to do this sort of immediate thing. We see somebody in suffering, we see Notre Dame in fire, and we just thought, okay, great, let's understand better. But the point is that most of those people or those donors just forget. If you are on a call to people that stop giving, one of the reasons they say, I'm a donor to UNICEF or Friends of the Heart, they forget. So the point that we all struggle with is, are we going to keep these people giving? Are we going to make them more active, more engaged? So this book is trying to answer some of this question. And the reason that you have seen is also building on what commerce and business does, because commerce and business have the same. How I keep customers, how Netflix gets people hooked to their series, how and Nike keep getting people uh, buying Nike. So they have the same issues that we have. They're a bit more advanced because they are more acumen or more insights. But the question is still the same. Attracting somebody to your shop or to your website or writing that check is tough, but it can get there. Repeating that act, that action, and even more, get somebody being your advocate. So somebody just not only write a check, just say, oh, you know, that organization is amazing. You also That's a completely different mm. Sorry for the long answer. <laughs> no, no, it's wonderful. And I'm wondering, can you just break down? I thought when I read your book and was learning about the different chemicals that are released in the brain during different types of asks and giving experiences, I found that to be really fascinating. And like you were saying before, this moment of, of course, of course, this is the difference in terms of what we know. And I've interviewed other folks on the podcast, like Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, but you laying it out in terms of when this type of giving experience happens, this is what chemical is being released in the brain. When this type of giving experience happens, this is what chemical. So can you talk to us about that? Just a little breakdown of that neuroscience. Yes, to be honest, the original inspiration is from Seth Godin, which he has this incredible clear way to put things if you follow him. And he just say, pleasure and happiness are two different things. And that's exactly what dopamine and serotonin are. They are two different chemicals. You can have a lot of pleasure in the activities and action we do, even interpersonal and donating. Yeah. While we're donating, but there are a number of chemicals that our brain release. We feel that good. And that's the reason why we're giving, right? We feel like so stressed, so in pain, so upset that the donation make us feel physically good. You can measure, in fact, the level of particularly this oxytocin is called, is a hormone that women release when they give birth and they make you feel very empathetic. Very, you want to hug everybody. You feel so interested. But it's a chemical thing. So when we donate, that's level of oxytocin determine how much you're going to give. You know? But that's very immediate. And dopamine rush, like when you get a like on your post, is immediate and addictive, but you want more. It just vanished very soon. So that's the donation pleasure part. It works like that. That's why you want to repeat the same thing because they give you the same rush of dopamine oxytocin. Because, you know, it's like any other hormone. You have to recreate exactly the same thing that your first time experience. And it's difficult, right? And just imagine you get hooked to an ad. I don't know. It's happened to up to us all the time, right? You get this metal, metal, very good ad, um, ad. On, I don't know, we have now Afghanistan crisis for UNICEF. It's very harrowing for all women and children. You know, it's terrible. And you can see the immediacy, right, on the need. Getting people warm clothes, the barely food to survive. This is such, such a immediate connection. Then when you go back, it's just like, already get, so give me more. And then you just say, but wait a minute, this is what we do with your money. And just go into a completely different Russian path. It's difficult to reactivate the same type. And, but the brain expects the same. 
They say, oh, I want exactly the same thing together. And it's difficult to replicate. So therefore, when we go to that, say, the happiness part, not the pleasure part, that's more of a long term. We are happy, so to say, when what we define happy, or we feel much better when we get the serotonin release, which is a long-term chemical. In fact, that's also something that is going to give, if you get a low level of serotonin, it's going to get provided through chemicals, artificially, right? Your doctor will prescribe and actually can lead to serious problems like depression and things. It's a long-term chemical that make you feel better, but it's act on a different mechanism. It's not as immediacy of connectivity through dopamine, rush, and oxytocin, and but it's more about longer release of feel good based on the memory. So if I feel something that is that good consistently and regularly, that the feel with my values and what I believe, I want to do more. I always said when you are supporting a team, I'm supporting a soccer team that is actually not very good, but I support it all my life. I don't need to be retold that go and buy the tickets, go and buy the merchandise. So I have so many memories linked to from going to the stadium with my dad or the great moment I had sharing with my friends. Be that supporter made me feel good long term. It's not a, actually the pleasure part. When you go to the games, it's sometimes not there. But be a supporter of that team made me feel good. I'm really interested in going a little bit deeper on this memory piece for a second and what that means for nonprofits. If they have an urgent scenario, for example, whether that urgent scenario is related to an urgent need or perhaps attention on an issue where the issue itself has been happening for a long time, but there's like a lot of media coverage, for example. So they have this moment. Is the goal then in that moment to create an easy action dopamine experience and then convert and then follow up with a serotonin experience. I'm probably yes, using the wrong that, language. No, no, that's correct, <laughs> right, Mara. You get it right. Exactly. So to get the break the, the wall of attention, we are all bombarded by thousands of inputs by the media. You need to get that attention that is dopamine driven. So the final aim you make to feel good through the donation. This is simply happening. And this is, again, science from Paul Zak that studied that more than anybody else to many others, and even in fundraising, you get Ken Burnett, through a story. You cannot just get this through convincing on what the organization does, the aim, the campaign. No, you get to have a human stories that connect to people. That's how you're going to get attention. That's how you're going to get that oxytocin release and dopamine. The best stories we got, the more people you get to get connected and donate. That is good, but it's not enough. At that very moment, for us, too often, we assume that this is it. So how much you donate, how often you donate, the RFM analysis is how going to categorize you based on the transaction. That's the first step. Did you donate $20 or $2,000? doesn't mean anything as a person. So once you got that, how I create from that moment such an amazing experience for you, Mallory, which you are a mom of two years old, you have, I don't know where you live exactly, but or you have certain value, you support certain courses or teams. So if I know you better, I can make this experience through supporting Michael's memorable because it's memorable for you, Mallory. It's not because it's memorable in general. So that's the fundamental step. Once I hook you, through the dopamine, I need to just create an experience or a series of experience. They are sticking to your memory because you are a unique individual and therefore you become normally supporting the cause because it's part of who you are. But I need to know you first. I need to know you. If I don't know you, I still assume that the $10 are the same $10 like anybody else. So I think one of the things I hear you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that as fundraisers, we often assume after the first donation 
that the donor identifies with our organization. And so we start to talk to them as if they're already there. We give them the impact report, but we miss this whole piece around building that relationship of saying they've actually only opened the door. And yes, money came through, but they really just opened the door. And now is our opportunity to invite them in using a memory-based, a serotonin-based experience really built around why are we inviting them through the door? That's correct. And in fact, this is the piece that we often miss. I think people, major donors are more geared up towards because they need to build a personal relationship so they spend more time in researching and understanding. But this should be for every piece of fundraising. So the first thing should be exactly to get more understanding of who you are so that I could create personal experience like Amazon does, like Nike does, like uh, the football team does, exactly that. So you're not anybody. Because just to give you an example, and this is again science and results. So in many UNICEF offices, one of the first thing we do is a very welcome, unscripted, thank you for being on board. And then very simple, sometimes also automated thing that just say how much you are committed to UNICEF from one to 10. So how much you're going to likely to donate in the future and how much you're happy, satisfied about that experience that you had today in donating to the website. Sounds very simple for me. Like, but those two indicators, the level of commitment and satisfaction drive the more long-term giving. So those that are more committed and more satisfied, and they say they are going to be stick longer and give more. So you see, it's not just a pure guessing. If you start asking and see, that's going to drive your, but if you start assuming that $10, okay, you're my supporter, give me more because this is important because you support the cause. You haven't created any magic in the relationship. And I think that's the missing part. So going back to your question about memory and how the me- this is another fascinating field of the neuroscience that is, I think just at the beginning, but how we form our memory is through reinforcement, right? And is I think that one of the Daniel Kahneman spent a lot on this is memories are very selective. For various reasons, we keep very little things. And those things exactly there are the peak and moment are where we should try to concentrate. So are we gonna make sure that the beginning of that after you give is fantastic and memorable? And the peaks, then we can go back to the peaks, exactly. So what are those peaks moments that we can just really push you and celebrate so that you remember to, and even the end is the most neglected part of our relationship. We just let too many donors go and just because they go, I leave it by that. Wow. Okay. I have so many directions I want to go. I'm curious. So you're making me think about these collective giving moments that happen across the nonprofit, like Giving Tuesday or community giving days. And we see metrics that demonstrate higher retention rates, for example, after a new donor gives on Giving Tuesday than on a different day, on a different random day. And there's always for me this question around the chicken and the egg. Is that because the organization did a better job celebrating? giving Tuesday success with their supporters. And so it cemented this deeper memory because they put more energy and more engagement around this whole end-to-end process of fundraising around Giving Tuesday versus someone who just donated on some random Wednesday. Or is it because there's something about the collective day of giving or a community day of giving or an external moment that is actually solidifying the memory in a bigger way at the beginning. What do you think? I would just say both, because being part of a community is definitely it's called social proof. It's, it's very, it's, it's a great motivation, right? So that celebration of a religious moment, right? So the Christmas, the Diwali, and the other things are big drivers. And we have one of the most underestimated of these birthdays. So it is that part that you're building up as a part of a community. We all want to celebrate with you because you're important for us. 
Therefore, you build is giving Tuesday per se is not a great motivator. Is there's not a community you're part of it? If you're not a challenge that you're part of it, I think one of the success of the Facebook challenges is that you are part of a community on the Facebook, right? That drive you and motivate you to be part of it. So you have to create that as a sort of a social proof moment in which you are part of it. But I think that, as I said, if you just know your donors that devalue the Christmas of this world and other religious, they are very powerful. And just the idea to just simply say, I just called or I just write to just wish you happy Diwali, Merry Christmas. This year you've been important. This just that. But if you see the difference is, I just call or I just write to wish you Merry Christmas because you're important. Instead of just say, it's Christmas, we need money. It's different. That simple interaction is a major driver. So is the celebration of the birthdays because it's important in our life. We celebrate birthdays. So if somebody say, why this time of the year you celebrate with your friends and this is part of a challenge over common things, so you are raising money for it. You create around an event, but you know, Mallory, this is important. An event that is relevant for you, not for the organization. Because I care about my birthdays, my Diwali, my Christmas, my Gaming Tuesday, not because it's important for you. You see, you create moments that are relevant for that supporter specifically, or group of supporters, of course. And so I think that's the thing that sometimes we are driving from the organization to the owner to say, this is a campaign is important for us to contribute, instead of just saying, what is important for you? What are the more important in your life and set of beliefs where I can just create moments that are relevant for you, maybe not for others, right? That's a big difference. Okay. I love that. And I we talk a lot here about funder lenses and empathy, real empathy. I feel like in the nonprofit sector, we often say the word empathy, but we don't really use empathy in relation to our donors that often. We don't sit in their actual seats and think about their experience. And oftentimes I feel like this comes from the hustle that so many, especially small, mid-sized nonprofits are facing and feeling a sense of scarcity mindset, which can give us tunnel vision on, we're just trying to get that next email out, but we don't then take that moment to sit in the other person's shoes. And exactly what you're saying, which I think is so critical is what is important to them? What's the experience to them? And I feel like there's been a little bit of a polarization in our sector between donor-centric fundraising and community-centric fundraising. And I really believe that the neuroscience, the things you're talking about, these cannot be ignored. These are human experiences that are really important and that there are ways to do them and build them in really community-centric ways that really provide equitable fundraising practices for your organization. I'm curious what you think about that. Absolutely. Exactly. Because that's my point. If you bother talking and dialogue with your donors and know them better, and what they really care, they, first of all, they're committed to organization or not, what they believe, then it's you hard. You don't going to have a, let's say, racist donor or white saver donor because they are not simply, they are, they, maybe they donated, but they don't really belong there. So then you have the moment to create that community of donor that belong to the organization as a community of individuals. But you need to bother to just know them and not assume that everybody is, is the same and not fit the same. I always remember this and in the book that with the birthday, that's such a simple thing, right? A birthday call to just say, Mallory, you're such a fantastic support for us. I just call to say happy birthday. No ask. And that's it. And why we prove it with data splitting to those that receive it as a much higher lifetime value set. And people just say, really, that's for, a, yeah, just for a birthday call. And I told in this today world, who today bother to call you, not to write an email or a message or WhatsApp to call you, a proper call, and to say happy birthday. For many people, and we have a large part of very uh, old donor, that was an amazing surprise. Nobody called them to say happy birthday. Oh, now, is that simple, but is that relevant to make the point? Um, a birthday call or birthday message that has to be real and personal makes all the difference in the world because it's relevant for that people. 
and it's relevant because you are with them in that moment of their life. Mm. Wow. I think something that you're touching on that I just think is so important is that there's the giving moment, the moment where the act of giving happens. And that is related, particularly if it's going to be a recurring donor or one of your really core support donors is so related to the moments that often get minimized, sideswiped, thought about as extras. And so I'm curious back to this peak end rule. Can we talk a little bit more about the peaks that cement our memory? Would you suggest that for a fundraiser, for an organization, that those peaks are all related to moments where there is no ask? Or as folks are thinking about their donor journey, can there be peaks that are directly related to giving or should they all be related to giving? Just talk to me a little bit about that. No, they could. But again, if the flow natural with that moment, if that moment is the moment of celebration, mostly, right, of in their life. That can be flow naturally. Some, as I say, for instance, the birthday call, there was not an ask, but very often the donors say, oh, so nice, I want to make an extra donation. And so that happened at Christmas. So it can be built in, tested, of course, that's what everything else. But also if it's very part of your journey, it can be flow naturally without even ask. And that I understand it seems to contradict the idea of the you have to ask kind of the asking piece. But for me, the element, for instance, if you think about legacy, legacy is a very long shot. You got people initially interested, then you have to cultivate, and this can take over ever. Until then, you're going to get that piece of legacy cashing and very valuable. So that is the same thing. So where is the asking of this peak moment? It has to be built and test depending by the type of, moments and journey, but also talking about cash. As I say, start measuring, start to just see those that receive the birthday call get more the year after. They are better retention. Those that have the Christmas thing, they are, if you start seeing that even if you don't ask, that's monetized in better retention and higher ask, then you start make, but it's irrelevant in my opinion, right? Because you just have data that prove, yo, even if we don't ask, the value is increased, the retention is increased. So there is a value in doing this. It's not just asking that makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. And I think it's such an important thing. And I'm very curious now to explore the relationship between non-ask moments around maybe it's a community giving day or giving Tuesday or end of year. I'm fascinated by the giving that happens on December 31st. It doesn't really make sense to me. Is it that they're just getting such a higher traffic of emails? Are really people sitting down, the everyday donor really sitting down being like, I want to make sure to get this donation in, but before the clock strikes 12, given the fact that so many organizations aren't implementing the principles that you're talking about here, although I really hope they will start to, but that we see across the board, this massive spike on December 31st. How do you explain or think about that? Because giving is is not rational. I don't want to say irrational. I would just say predictable, rational, irrational. Exactly because it makes no sense. But it makes no sense. Our list that we do exactly on the 31st, just say from January 1st, it's going to be dry January. I'm going to start to go to gym. It doesn't make sense in your opinion. Why you do on the 31st on the 1st of January? Why this all of a sudden? Because it's beginning, it's totally artificial. And that's exactly what happened on the 31st. There's no real reason to be behind. So we need to accept this sort of irrationality, but also be able to take advantage in a most positive way. I just say why people give to Diwali is part of the religion. It makes no sense, right? And be karma or be gratitude or be fear. This is how we human are. These are what drive us to do things what we do. So that's why just it's, it's important to have this peak moment, right? What are you going to celebrate of their life? What are you going to celebrate that makes sense for your supporters? And and how this celebration drive, then you have to measure behavior that is increasing gift, increasing average, increasing retention, because per se is 
purposeless. But if you bother to just say, look, through this journey, through these moments, I can see there are better retention, better, you know, that you start realizing the value of that. That is not simply in the ask. I think the asking piece has been a bit drivers to too much on the transaction side. Uh, you know, asking is the rule number one. If you don't ask, you don't give. But if that's the only interaction you get, you're going to lose as that approach. If the only thing you keep is keep asking and asking more and you don't care if people don't respond and you don't care if people are because there are still more people you can ask. It's just becoming a rise to the bottom. And I, I really think that I struggle right now. I'm a part of a transformation into a digital world, new CRM. I struggle to just see this mentality is very much still transactional. So that we look still at donor through the recency, frequency, and monetary value. These are important criteria, but if we don't just build upon the humanity and will really drive people, why people give on the 31st of, of December, why people give at Christmas or Diwali, why Christmas, a birthday call makes a difference, et cetera, et cetera. We really risk to see a reality that doesn't correspond. People that give $10 and $10 are not the same. We need to really start looking to what drive people to donate and to belong to organization because this makes a big difference, you know. And I think this is the weak link in our sector. We way too much race to the only uh, without bothering to understand who are our supporters, what they care, and how can I build this relationship. This might have been in the book, but I'm curious about your experience studying or looking at the relationship between memory and motivation. I'm thinking about an episode we did with Dr. BJ Fogg on habits and behavior. And so the Fogg behavior model is the relationship between motivation, ability, and then a prompt. And how much motivation you have, he defines as motivation goes up, as hope goes up, and then how easy is the action to take? So that goes to like, how easy is your donation form on the site? But also, are you asking within the ability level of that person? Are you asking someone who can't give a million dollars for a million dollars? And then of course, that they're actually being asked, that they're actually being prompted. I'm thinking about the story you told about the sports team and how you don't need to be prompted all the time because it's in your memory. So I'm trying to think about the relationship between memory and motivation. How do you think about that? Yeah, no, it's very linked because the memory works. Our brain keeps remember part of the things in the memory because this has helped us to solve puzzle problems. And we know it's reinforced behavior. We okay, so I know that they, if I know if I do this, I'm gonna expect this because I know the brain constantly make projection. So that's why it's important. So if I know that through this donation, that engagement, that call, I will have this rush of pleasure, dopamine. That's I will repeat and I don't need to think twice. If I know they're going to be harassed by another ask for money, that is not what I want. I just done completely disjoint, right? That's why it's important. It's I'm going to reinforce that pleasure moment through the different interaction. I, it's one of the things I said is the time of interaction after the donation, right? So we tested that if you do a personal call, from the same person that for instance recruited you in, in the canvassing within 24 hours, you're going to get an enormous increase in donation retention. And the more time is passed, the less people will stay or will give again. So that how you can create that memory, which is the immediate after the dopamine, right? How are we going to reinforce that? You only remember people to people. You only remember, but now, you know very well, Mary, instead what we do, we send a newsletter, we send a thank you letter, we send nice as much as you want, but it's still, it's not a person. So how your memory will going to influence? You've done something emotional, right? Very dopamine driven. And you receive a very formal acknowledgement of what you've done. That has nothing to do with the pleasure moment. Instead of somebody that just say, I call you personally, take my time or to write to, or to call you because this is something important. See, that's how you sediment the memory so that the person, oh, wow, and all is actually done, maybe all out of the, my instinct, is something really, somebody value that, this is stick to my memory, so next time. It's all about that creation and reinforcement. So the memory is a reinforcement mechanism. 
that knows, expects that the next interaction should be as good as what we expect. And if it's not, I would just, the memory would just say, well, that's not that good memory. Just don't do it. Don't pick up the phone. Don't answer to the appeal because it's actually not what you expect. So is that moment, that thank you moment right after, is that a peak moment? Yes, of course. If it's done okay. personally, one-to-one, human, yes, it is. It's sediment exactly the pleasure that is not just occasionally, but just say, oh, wow, I am part of something bigger or something. A human being, this called mom, Mallory, this is a mom, just took in the time to come and to share. This is important. I feel part. But this is up in the moment. That's up because that, you will be surprised. I will invite everybody to do, to just run some calls for people's donors. And see how many of them remember to be donors. People they've given for maybe 10 years. They don't even, they forgot about it. And therefore, yeah, the memory is a reinforcement mechanism that only works if it's a solution to a problem or if it's a pleasure they give us. We keep it in the memory. We memorize things because we know, okay, I do this because uh, I know where I have to go. Or, oh, this, I know if I do this, I I will get pleasure. I know that if I watch a match, I will have a rush of adrenaline and dopamine. That's why I watch it, even if I end up being frustrated. So that's the memory element as a reinforcement of behavior and expectation for a reward. If you break that thing, it's very difficult to get back on track. You know, Too often I see this newsletter, this welcome pack. They are nothing to do with somebody maybe has given on a, an emergency, on a very personal, I want to save that dog that you show me, I want to save that child, I want to help that person, and you send me this very institutional piece. This How this is supposed to click in my memory? I remember the dog, I remember the child, I remember that, that I sponsor, I don't remember your CEO or whatever. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Okay, so you're bringing up this really interesting thing, which is, so I, I signed up as in my business for this new CRM and I was getting a lot of emails from them about like, how is this going? How, you know, a lot of the things that you talk about in the book, even surveys around different components, a lot of support, doing a really great job. And then I had been in this new CRM for 30 days and I get an email that looks like a normal email from the CEO of the company. And it's like a three sentence email, super warm. And it just says something like, hey, you joined us 30 days ago. I just want to check in with you, see how everything's going. It's really important to us that our customers are satisfied with our product and we're always trying to improve. Let me know if there's anything we can do to improve your experience or I can't remember, but super simple, super warm. And what you're making me think about is, One, it made me think, oh my gosh, this just needs to be in everything that I do, even in my own business. But it also made me think about, I feel like sometimes in the nonprofit sector, we get so afraid to build personal relationships because then we're worried the donor is going to be tied directly to us and it will be hard to transition the donor to someone else. I could not tell you that CEO's name if my life depended on it, but I do very well remember the feeling and the company. You remember, yes. Exactly. You, Mallory, you're absolutely right. And this, I think, is also science and proof. This simple act to ask for feedback increased four or five times at the retention lifetime value. Donor voice have done worse than that. So just a simple, exactly say, how was it? Just two minutes, Mallory, you've been with us. Thanks for donating. How was your experience on our website? You find it easy, engaging. Please let us know something we could do. How was your interaction with our person? 
that simple act is an act that makes you make donor feel valued. Now, people say, oh, people don't bother to respond. Okay, but those that, that take the time, they feel valuable, they feel rewarded, they feel that their point of view counts. I just honestly, I like you, I think I donate personally to many courses and also as part of my profession to many others to see, uh, you know, right, mystery shopping. I don't even remember how many do that, exactly that thing. How many has me, how was the experience? Do you know any case that that's a that CEO write to you? Even automated, like you said, any automated messages say, Great, you have more. Let me know what you can. Do you remember any of this? I remember many just asked me for a second gift in case. Many asked me for a great, but how was the thing? Very few. And that's, you noted very well the difference between commerce and, and us. And they don't know as a pure kindness. I can guarantee you there is bottom line behind because they know that the more you feel Valued as a customers, the more you provide in- input, the more likely you're going to buy more and be part of that. Yeah. And just feel if there is a problem, they're going to help me resolve it. You talk about in your book a little bit around the negative piece when people have a negative experience with your organization, like some issue with their transaction and things like that. And that can be so frustrating. And people, I feel like perhaps some of what was signaled to me through that email is just this company's got my back and they are handling my credit card and they are handling these other things. And it's just nice to know that there's humans over there. That's right. (laughs) That's absolutely right. And I always said that this is this act of asking our experience, the feedback. I was in the book, it's getting unnoticed, but I hope that we're going to have a discussion sometime. Of all the organizations I research, the known that I know they have a very clear refund policy. And people say, oh, but this is an unethical, immoral, but so on Amazon, not well, sorry to make names, but one of the things that make you trust the company, say, if I change my mind or the product is not good, I just get it back and get a refund. No question asked, right? That's give you trust, right? Well, you, you don't, on the non-profit, if I made a mistake or change my mind, I'm not happy. There's no policy. There's, so there's simply, you cannot. So that's the type, you see the difference. See? How can you trust then somebody just say, well, if I change my mind, I'm not happy. I don't know who I've talked to or I have a complaint. Does, does somebody take it into account how this is going to change? This is the level of confidence and trust that we don't create. There is also this other piece of, which is very interesting, there's Habitat for Humanity to run this test. One appeal, just say, okay, blah, 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 to, to build this many houses. And, and another say, 100% money guaranteed. If you think that we don't use well the money, do not achieve whatever, we're going to refund your money. They get the same response rate. The second with the money back guarantee get double the, or three times the average gift. How many people ask their money back? Zero. Zero. But it's a level of comfort. So if you, and why as a non-profit, if we are so, and I think the, many of us are doing amazing job, right? That they over-deliver, they do amazing. Why should we be afraid to just say, if we don't actually, what we ask you the money for, we're going to give you the money back. This will add so much credibility and humanity and understanding. And I feel somebody take this seriously and nobody will ask the money back anyway. <laughs> Mm, It's really interesting. You know, I think it's such a good point also around as we start to experience companies that do things and we start to build relationships with other entities that aren't nonprofits that have these standard operating procedures that do make us feel comfortable. And then we go to the nonprofit sector and they don't have any of those. There's this gap we've gotten used to it. I have a course called the Power Partners Formula and I have a 60-day money-back guarantee. People thought it was the craziest thing. And I was like, if somebody actually comes into my course, uses it, and it doesn't work for them, I, of course, want to give them their money back. And then if you build trust and relationships, exactly, because you have nothing to hide, exactly like you said. If I promise to to save children, I need to save children sometimes. It's complicated. It can be challenging. But if you believe that I don't, and of course, you prove it, but we don't. We're not in this frame yet. 
Yeah. So before we run out of time, I have to ask you this question. So I'm so curious, we're seeing this rise in monthly giving programs. And I feel like everyone is talking about or launching different monthly giving programs, especially smaller, mid-sized organizations who perhaps didn't have a program like that previously. I'm curious if a first-time donor joins a monthly giving program, does that signal to you that the organization did a good job creating both a dopamine and serotonin-like experience at once? It depends, uh, Mallory, because it's, it, for instance, in Europe, it's, it's pretty much something now in the last 20 years, more, many organizations just go straight for the monthly giving. So it depends by if you ask monthly giving people, that's the chance they have. doesn't signal necessarily, per, it's like the transaction. I don't believe this signal anything. Monthly giving is this level of, of belonging of a different step. You choose to give monthly because you want to be a member, right? The point is that I've seen most of the time, if that's becoming your obsession, you alienate many donors that don't want to do that. You maybe force people to sign up for a commitment and then doesn't have a long-term commitment. So the one of the things I see in person in face-to-face higher level attrition because people are just, that's the only option they get. The sign up in the street and then they have a second thought and they need. I would not make any assumption that monthly giving is a different type of donor. It's simply the offer that we make. It's the same, go, we go back to previous conversation, how this monthly donation gets celebrated and sedimented to peak moment. How are you going to, we haven't talked about that from beyond time, but are you going to just manage the end of that relationship? So if somebody just unsubscribe, what do you do? Let it go? Or just harassing him or her? How are you going to manage that level of when the relationship finish? So I would just encourage the monthly giving is very valid. It's efficient option if it's done well. It cannot just be an option for the organization. What does it mean for the donor to donate monthly? What this achieve on top? How does this make me feel good every month? There was the famous product uh, that is still valid that is called child sponsorship. That's one why it was working because it's one story of a child and you every month you get an update on what's going on. It makes sense to give monthly, right? How can you make this give monthly uh, that type of level? And I think that Donald choose to do a good job about it because, again, it's about the classroom and what's going on. I would encourage to not make the monthly a transaction, but to make it what out is. So you have to have monthly celebration, monthly peaks to sediment that. You have to get monthly moments that make sense for the people to give monthly done. The worst things I've seen, Mallory, is when the organizations say give monthly because this is making for us a better life to plan ahead and just be more. How this is supposed to motivate a donor if it's good for you? It's supposed to give to achieve something or to, uh, for me, not for you to be more efficient. And so again, donors is a donor irrespective if they give monthly or one-off. If you this what you go, be sure that you have a journey and offer to this as emotionalist sediment memories, celebrate peaks, so that this becoming a real relationship and not a simple, another item on the credit card. Okay, wow. I have so many more questions, but I'm going to hold my tongue and just tell everyone where they can find you, learn more about you, the best place to go and buy your books so they can connect with you after this. Take the farming all, on all social media and as a, just as an exclusive to you, there will be soon a website is called Emotion Raising. So we'll, there'll be a repository of all these articles and, and other things, but they can find me on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. On the book is available, the both books, Hooked on a Feeling and Emotion Raising are available on Amazon. That is the fastest, best way to do. However, for the Canadian, especially this book is, is Canadian, can have a special discount if the book directly from a Civil Society Press. And for if there are organizations, and there have been some organizations that wanted to do more bulk buying like for their teams, that's something you can consider to organize as some discount. And also I'm happy to discuss with all the team, having a day with them and getting more deep dive. So there are various options if those that want to explore. Otherwise, Amazon is the fastest way. 
And if you can add problem, of course, you still contact me through, again, normal social media. Thank you so much. I have been mailing your book all over the place <laughs> to people <laughs> the last few months. And I'm just so grateful for you and the work that you're doing and just the wealth of knowledge that you're providing nonprofits to improve their practices and create better and more human connections with their communities. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mallory. It's been a pleasure and definitely hopefully we're going to get another chance later. I would love that. Wonderful. Thanks again. Thank you. see why I'm freaking out over Francesco's work or what. There are so many learnings from his book and this conversation that are revolutionizing the way I am thinking about different parts of the donor journey. And I want to be clear about something. I totally believe that this can be done without harmful and exclusionary practices. As I mentioned in this episode, there is this polarization happening between community-centric and donor-centric practices right now that isn't leaving space for science-backed behavior research synthesized with the value pillars of community-centric fundraising. But I absolutely think there is a way to do it. There are four takeaways from this episode that I think align well with this goal and that you can implement into your fundraising plan today. Number one is ask for feedback. We've learned from Francesco that the simple act of asking for feedback might increase your donor retention lifetime four or five times. Serving your donors isn't just a nice to have, it's a must. The second is celebrate around a donor's personal peak moments. You wanna be a part of each donor's story and understand what's important to them. This isn't about centering the donor in your organization's work, You want to share in their peak moments to create memories and long-term identity with your organization around your shared goals. The third is that memory happens through the reinforcement of emotion. We often think that after someone gives a donation, they're in, but that's just the first step. We have to create aligned serotonin-based experiences that will lead to memories. That's how we increase engagement and retention with our donors. Four is you need to truly understand your supporters. Personalized experiences are the ultimate goal. To achieve them, we need to start asking instead of assuming. All right, that's just the tip of the iceberg here. So head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to get access to all of the show notes right now. You'll also find more information there about Francesco's incredible work and how to connect with him. And you should definitely check out Hooked on a Feeling as well. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to malloryerickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.